our hearts awaken to the reality of Christ come. We can welcome the consolation of Israel with the worship of Simeon and Anna in the temple. Zechariah, as he praised you and prophesied of the meaning of his son, who would lead the way as Elijah to go before the Messiah. Mary, as she sang her song of worship unto you. All the songs of the incarnation remind us, Lord, of the momentous time when God became man. Emmanuel was a reality. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The greatest miracle in all of history was accomplished when you took on the necessary conditions to take on the weight of our sin, to purchase our atonement on Calvary, Lord Jesus. For these reasons, we gather here this day. We would have no basis for fellowship fellowship and no reason for gathering were it not for the shared experience of hearts renewed, of being born again, coming to the knowledge of the faith, repenting of our sin, and placing faith in Christ and His work alone to save us. We thank You, Lord, that this peace that's now shed abroad in our hearts has reconciled us to a holy God and has, by the imputed righteousness of Christ, declared us worthy to stand in your presence, has justified us, has taken away all the stain of sin and shame that once rendered us hell-bent and unworthy of your favor and now has given us new life and that abundantly in Christ our Lord. Father, I pray as we turn our attention to your word that you would awaken our hearts, Lord, afresh to the realities of the beauty of your redemption and how it has been revealed through the pages of history. And I pray that you would take the words from the page this morning and write them on the tables of our hearts, that we might be more bold and confident and steadfast and movable and able to share our faith. We also pray, as your name is lifted up, Christ, that you would draw the lost unto repentance and faith. We pray that the light, however small or feeble it may feel in our hearts at times, we pray that it would shine as you have ordained In the darkness, all the brighter, Lord, being a light and a beacon for those who yet lie in the outlying regions. Let them know through the proclamation of Christ that the sunrise of God has touched them in the revelation of Jesus Christ if they turn from their sins and place faith in Him alone. Thank you for this time when we can gather together in your name. In Jesus' name, that is, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we have the honor, the great privilege, and the incredible gift, purchased with the price of Christ's own blood, to share in the worship of the Almighty this day. To do so, we continue in our service today in exploring His Word. I'd like to turn you to Isaiah chapter 12. Turn to Isaiah 12 in a moment. We'll stand for the reading of the Word. As you find your place there in your Bible... Let me give you a title for this morning's message. It's Drawing Water. The title is called Drawing Water. The title is taken from an analogy, a picture in the chapter itself. With joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. This morning I'd like to explore that concept some and also explore how Isaiah fits, Isaiah 12 fits, into the idea of a new song and the call to worship through the ages upon the revelation of Christ's work. This is true in the prophetic era, the era of the major prophets, including Isaiah, even as it was in other points of Scripture. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to explore the wells of revelation, wells here of salvation as described in Isaiah 12.3. To explore the wells of revelation as we touch upon a few places in Scripture today, inspiring, fitting worship. 
as we dig into the well of salvation revealed in Scripture, uh, the instruction is, the call is, that it would yield fitting worship, worship that would glorify the Lord. Would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's Word? Today, we open the Scriptures to Isaiah 12, verse 1. Listen as the Holy Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, and you, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for He has done gloriously, let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. So today, we conclude our December series and study of this idea of new song. And this idea of new song or new songs through covenant history, we've touched upon several places in the Word of God which exemplify the instructions of Psalm 98. The second Sunday of this month was our Psalm a Month series, or Sunday and Psalm 98.1 opens as follows, a psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. I wonder what that sounds like, you might ask. What does it sound like, or what does a new song offered to the Lord on account of the marvelous things that he has done sound like? Well, we hear the sound, do we not? When Jehoshaphat instructs the army to go before the people of God, and a routing of the enemies of Israel is accomplished by God's sovereign will, in that instance, and the timbrel and the lyre are employed, and a victory celebration as the people praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, for delivering them from their enemies. We hear the sound also, don't we, when we see David, king of Israel at the time, submitting to a greater king than him still, and moving the ark from a place of obscurity in Obed-Edom to a place of prominence, even at the city of our God. And here the praises of the Lord are offered by king and all the people, as this new song on the occasion of the entrance of the ark, that is the presence of God into the uh, company of the people, the communion of the people, is feature is this featured event. Furthermore, we see this in the incarnation, in the songs that I mentioned during our prayer, where Zechariah breaks forth spontaneously into worship, praise, and prophecy as he announces to all within his hearing and through the pages of Scripture, to all who even listen today, the significance of John the Baptist and Christ to follow. Mary herself sings a new song, that is, praise and worship worthy of the God who has placed his son in her womb by a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit himself. Simeon and Anna praise in the temple, a fitting place for praise of Jesus Christ to be offered after all. Tabernacle and temple worship that preceded the arrival of Christ in that manger some 2,000 years ago. That whole, uh, that whole ceremonious 
uh, event that would take place all spoke of Jesus. It was, in fact, his house, as it were. These are examples through Scripture of new song. We've, re- we've referenced this concept of recognizing with proportional and appropriate praise each new occasion to worship the Lord through several eras of covenant history. And if you're wondering, a working definition we've been using for new song is exactly that, recognizing with proportional and appropriate praise each new occasion to worship the Lord. Beginning in Psalm 98, uh, we uh, referenced where the call uh, to new song worship, if you will, is explicitly declared. We noted such worship examples during the times of the kings, the incarnation, and even glimpses of the future, new heavens and new earth in the book of Revelation. And today we conclude with a reference to similar praise from the prophets, namely Isaiah in our example today, Isaiah 12. Here the prophet points forward to a time of deliverance and salvation for the people of God that will have worldwide ramifications. From the heart of the individual believer to the universal publication of the crown rights of Jesus Christ, the scope of the Messiah's kingdom will be commemorated by appropriate, proportional, fitting, proper worship. This is a message of Isaiah 12. In this brief poetic interlude, Isaiah provides his readers a glimpse of future glory and a call to future worship. The rest of his oracle, the rest of the book of Isaiah, and indeed all of the scriptures provide the context or references to the salvation of the Lord and his deeds among the peoples, which are worthy of such majestic praise. This morning, I'd like to explore Isaiah 12 under this heading, New Song Themes Anticipated by the Prophet Isaiah. New Song Themes that are anticipated in Isaiah 12. Three of them this morning. Number one, prophetic situation. Prophetic situation referring to the placement of events crucial to the fulfillment of covenant promises in time. Secondly, a vow of thanksgiving, a commitment, a promise to worship the Lord with a thank offering, if you will, of high praise unto Him. And third theme, universal decree, a call that goes forth to declare the glories of our great God and to call all people to recognize them, that is universal, coextensive with the universe, if you will. It goes beyond just a people or a person, an individual, his heart, or a private ceremony or religious tradition. It goes beyond any parochial view of the worship of our Lord, and it extends forth to all nations, all people for all time, and calls them, calls their attention to view, to witness, to realize, to appreciate the power and glory of our God and His Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and respond accordingly. So these are three themes anticipated by the prophet Isaiah as he breaks forth with this poetic moment in the midst of his oracle in Isaiah 12. First of all, new song theme anticipated, prophetic situation. Notice how Isaiah 12 is separated into two parts by this phrase, in that day. Isaiah 12, 1, you will say, in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Furthermore, verse 4, or 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, then 4 follows, and you will say, in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name. So there is a day or a moment of significance 
that is some point, at some point in the future that Isaiah points toward. And this is significant as you consider the prophetic situation of Isaiah himself. The era of the authorship of this book is interesting. Isaiah's ministry was marked by proclamation and manifestation of national judgment due the moral failings of Israel. And largely, his ministry and the immediate hearers, there would be a giant disconnect. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6 just to document this. In Isaiah 6, that's a record of his calling to be a prophet to the nation under judgment. And notice verse 9, he said, this is God's voice to his servant Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So this was the era in which Isaiah was written, a people whose hearts were hardened by the Lord. The very thing that they needed to hear was the thing they hated most. Can we relate to this to some degree in our land today? The very thing that will be the hope for the future of our nation, beleaguered in sin, is the very thing that is most canceled in our culture or hated or marginalized or rebuked or mocked or kicked off of various media platforms. Isaiah's ministry was similar, perhaps even more dramatic. He was, it was marked by a proclamation and manifestation of national judgment due to the moral failings of Israel. He was writing to an immediate audience who would only grow more obstinate and unreceptive as a result of the teaching that he was bringing to them. Consequently, it is no surprise that large portions of the book presuppose a yet future audience whose spiritual ears and affections will be tuned to the message of messianic deliverance. You see, Isaiah knew that though his words immediately with his hearers were falling on deaf ears, that ultimately the word of God will not return void. And that there would come a time when the word that he was faithful to deliver from the Lord would produce the effect that God had intended. And praise his holy name, not just hardening hearts under judgment in his era, but awakening hearts under the reality of salvation. If you are a believer in this room, the word of God has done that in your life. And so this is the era of authorship. This is the prophetic situation. And when Isaiah speaks of in that day twice, you can sort of feel for him. He is speaking of an era yet future, whereas right now, when he, or at the time of the proclamation, people hated what he said. He knew that that would not remain forever. There would come a time in that day, things would change. So as we move to a second point of prophetic situation, let's consider a little bit more closely what he means by that phrase, in that day. In that day speaks of a yet future era. Chapter 12 is divided into two sections, as I mentioned, by this future-oriented phrase. It's a poetic and descriptive reference to the moment when the people of God realize the salvation of the Lord. So in verse 1, chapter 12, 1, you will say, in that day, may I submit, you could substitute for that phrase, this interpretive reality, the moment when the people of God realize the salvation of the Lord. In the moment when the people of God realize their salvation, they will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, 
Your, angry turned away, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Again in verse 4, and you will say in that day, or by extension, an interpretive context here, you could say in the moment when the people of the Lord realize the salvation he has provided, they will say, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, Proclaim that his name is exalted. This is the prophetic situation that Isaiah anticipates. There will come a time, moments in the future, when the people of God will realize the salvation of the Lord. There are this idea of the salvation of the Lord in the Old Testament, we've mentioned in the course of this series is generally with reference to existential threats that the people of God face. Existential meaning existence. So when there were enemies of the people of God that threatened their existence on the outside, deliverance or salvation from these forces was the context. So in, in the uh, situation, like say in Jehoshaphat's case, they were praying for deliverance, salvation from the enemy armies like the Moabites or others who threatened on the borders of Israel the existence of God's people. That idea is expanded in the course of Scripture, and it's expanded prophetically in Isaiah's book to include greater existential threats still. In fact, as we've noted, the last and greatest enemy Paul recognizes has nothing to do with armies of flesh and blood, but everything to do with that which can steal your soul and send it straight to hell. The greatest enemy is the consequences of sin and the Lord of this world, small l, who rules <coughs> the hearts of unbelievers to deceive and to lie, to steal and to kill and to destroy. Our sin, Satan himself, and death as a consequence of our sin are the greatest existential threats to the people of God. But Isaiah prophesies of a day when though we are faced with enemies even as intense, even as foreboding as these, there will come a moment when the people of God will realize the salvation of the Lord, and when they do, their hearts, their voices, their demeanor, their attitude, their life, and their lifestyle will break forth into fitting worship, realizing their God has delivered them from sure and ultimate eternal death, destruction, and suffering, and torture that they deserved. This concept has application to numerous events. In other words, when would be the moment that the people of God would realize the salvation of the Lord? The incarnation was such a moment. When Jesus was born and the angels announced from glory, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, this was a moment where the shepherds, at least to name a few, their eyes were opened to realize the salvation of the Lord. And what did they do? They made haste and they went to see this baby lying in a manger. And when their spiritual eyes had been opened, they didn't see an infant who was helpless and a totter like any other child. They worshiped him as they ought. He was Jesus Lord at his birth. He was a king lying there. In the same way, Simeon in the temple. When that baby was delivered on the eighth day to be circumcised, and this man, faithfully waiting for the consolation of Israel, holds this Little one in his arms, he stares into the eyes of the very moment, if you will, of his salvation and prophesies accordingly. His prophecy isn't some tender moment that is marked by a child who will, you know, take you away in a manger and make you feel real cozy and nice 
No, he says even to Mary that this child will uh, send a sword of division and will create a great conflict in their house and in the house of Israel and so forth, as you recall. Why? Because this moment of salvation is significant. It means the destruction of the enemy's territory. It means the advance of the kingdom of God. It means the crown rights of Jesus Christ established and expanding throughout the globe. And it means ultimately that our sins will be atoned for when that baby grows and takes upon himself the weight of our iniquity and is slaughtered on the cruel cross of Calvary. So Jesus' birth was a moment when the people of God, whose eyes were opened, realized the salvation of the Lord. And so the cross itself, when Jesus hung on that cross and the centurion drops his hammer, if you will, he looks up and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God in that moment, in that confession. He realized that the salvation of the Lord was nigh on the day when Jesus died. Similarly, you could think of the resurrection itself when the stone was rolled away and the, and the angels announced an empty tomb and Mary was greeted in the garden by her Savior resurrected, now glorified and yet walking among them soon to be ascended. She realized with the others whose eyes were opened the moment in that moment that the people of God had realized the salvation of the Lord. And so what is an appropriate response? Well, a new song, fitting and appropriate worship, praising his name. You will say in that day, that is, in the day of his incarnation, in the day of his death on Calvary, in the day of his resurrection or saint in this room, in the day when your sins were atoned for, when you confessed and believed Jesus Christ, you will say in that day, in the moment of your salvation realized, thank you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. You see, when we realize the day of the Lord in this sense, the wells of salvation begin to burst forth with living water of praise to our Lord. And revelation, understanding, and increased uh, appreciation for what He has done. Suddenly, this analogy comes a little more alive, does it not? Verse 3, when Isaiah writes, with joy, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. What are the wells of salvation? And what does it look like to draw water from them? Well, this is an illustration or a metaphor. We were discussing this in family worship last night. My wife pointed out that a well that has water in it is a source of life. And so salvation is a source of eternal life. For those of us who believe, certainly you could draw that connection. Furthermore, a well is a reservoir containing something. A well is a depository of life-giving water. Those who are parched in the wilderness, if they can tap into that source beneath, there is a reservoir that will sustain the village, sustain the population, become a common place where people of gathering, where people can water themselves and their animals and save themselves. Their livelihood can continue as they're refreshed and sustained by that life-giving water. In a similar way, the wells of salvation are a reservoir containing all that is necessary for the spiritual health, well-being, vitality, and salvation of his people. So what is in that well? The sovereign plan of God's self-revelation and man's redemption. The knowledge that Christ would come in the future. And the prophecies of old and everything lining up according to God's sovereign intent to accomplish this act. That is in the reservoir of salvation. And when we look in the scriptures and see the beautiful way that he has designed our redemption 
And when we think about it, meditate, and praise accordingly, we're drawing, as it were, forth from the wells of salvation, appropriate praise, are we not? As we continue, we see in the Scriptures the condescension of the eternal Son. Jesus Christ, who in His glory was with the Father forever before He came to earth, He took on flesh, veiled His glory, stooped low, was humiliated to the point of not just a baby in a manger, but a excruciating, humiliating, torturous death on the cross. And in this act of divine condescension, stooping low, taking on our sin, becoming a man, taking on the form of a servant, we have in the reservoir, we have this in the reservoir of salvation, in the well of salvation. So as we appreciate even as we are wont to do this time of year, the meaning of the incarnation, and we are blown away by the implications of God becoming man, Emmanuel, God with us, we are in that thought process drawing from the wells of salvation, glorious truth, sustaining our souls, glorifying God. The messianic prophecies of word and type and shadow, Isaiah 53, for instance, uh, Isaiah is full of, of uh, water, living water, as it were, a proclamation of the glories of the Messiah. And one of the most famous chapters in this regard is Isaiah 53, which tells us, verse 4, Surely he, of course, speaking of the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement, that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Do you not hear the reservoir of salvation's well bubbling over with the prophecies of the significance of Christ's work in the incarnation, overflowing to your soul as we read, even as we go further to understand in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord, that is God the Father, to crush him, Christ our Lord, he put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Thus we have so much in the reservoir of the wells of salvation to draw upon by way of meditation, by way of confession, by way of encouragement, by way of prayer and praise, offering to God the glory he deserves for these things. As we move forward through the scriptures into the new covenant context, we see these things in the gospel unfolding in greater measure still, if it could be said, with the incarnation, the ministry, the miracles, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. All of this is in the reservoir, in the well of salvation. We draw upon them when we realize the great cost of our salvation and the glories that attended that act, sovereignly designed and executed in God's perfect time. The consequent estate of the believer, when the believer is fundamentally changed upon realizing the gospel, Romans 8, 29, and 30 tell us that foreknowledge, predestination, sanctification, adoption, calling, justification, and glorification are all involved in the Lord drawing us from our sin and setting us upon the rock, Jesus Christ, pulling us from the miry clay of judgment deserving depravity and washing us white as snow, and giving us the righteous robes of Jesus Christ, all of this is in the reservoir of salvation. So as we turn back to Isaiah's poetic metaphor, in Isaiah chapter 12, it provides some context for what he means when he says to drink deeply as it were, or to draw water 
with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So these are new song themes anticipated by the prophet Isaiah. Prophetic situation. Second major theme from Isaiah 12, a vow of thanksgiving. When drawing water from the wells of salvation ought to result in thankful praise. 12.1, again, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. There is a vow, there is a commitment to praise. There is a vow of thanksgiving that Isaiah prophesies will be in the hearts of those who draw from the well of salvation, deeply of the waters, of the living waters of God's revelation, of his hope. And those who do so in that day, remember, in that moment when they realize the salvation of the Lord, they will say, I will give thanks, or I vow to praise you my whole life long. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. Think of these inspirations for thanks. First of all, the anger of the Lord turned away. Romans 5, 1 and 2, last week we covered. I just reference it because it has parallels to our text here today again. In Romans 5, 1 and 2, Paul tells us that justification grants us peace with God. Paul understands very clearly that there are two categories of existence. There's the holiness of God and there's the sinfulness of humanity. And ne'er the twain shall meet, as they say. There is no possible way for the depravity of a sinful man to be uh, entertained in the presence of a holy God until something fundamentally changes. That fundamental change is justification. It is the declaration of righteousness and holiness to the believer upon the sufficient payment of Jesus' death. And then and only then do we have peace with God. Paul goes on to describe that our situation was one of enmity. We were enemies with God. We had declared war in our sin with his holiness. And we, are, we had set ourselves, we had aligned ourselves with the seed of the serpent, not the seed of the woman ultimately represented in Christ. But this is the state, this is the state of every man born in his sin. But notice, there is a day, there is a moment when God's people realize his salvation, when suddenly their expression of joy and praise changes. They say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. As Simeon prayed in the face of the little one, Jesus, eight days old, waiting for the consolation of Israel and then realizing its arrival, he knew that the Prince of Peace was cradled there in the temple in his arms. And so did others. They understood the ramifications of the angel's song. And on earth, peace with those among those with whom God is pleased. We referenced three parts to that angel's song. As you recall from last week, there was this transcendent glory, glory to God in the highest. And then there's this promise of peace between God and man. And this is the kind of peace that it was prophesied in Isaiah 12, where once God was angry with us, now his anger is turned away and he comforts us. And so we see in the uh, song, I was sung by the angels, transcending glory, peace with God available, 
and a people who are distinguished by God's divine favor, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Those whom God has mysteriously set his favor upon, the elect, the called ones, the ones who by his mercy and by his grace alone can say, I am now changed. I am now born again. I'm no longer a child of my sin, but I'm a child of God. He has transformed me from the inside out. He's given me a new heart, made it soft like clay where it once was hard as stone. A person who can say such things is a person who has been set apart by the favor and the kindness and the grace of the Lord who once were an enemy, but now have experienced the anger of the Lord turned away and the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling their very being. And so it only is natural that a person who has experienced such a thing would be inspired to make a vow of thanksgiving. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you are angry, your anger is turned away, and I am comforted. This vow of thanksgiving has an additional inspiration. God, my salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. Isaiah prophesies in verse 2. Again, these are the people who have realized the salvation of the Lord. In that moment of realization, they understand that God's anger is turned away, and He Himself has become their salvation. How is this possible? Only if God could become man, only if Christ Himself was the Lamb of God, only if Christ was not only prophet, priest, and king, mediating our uh, situation with the Father, but additionally our sacrifice. In that case, God Himself becomes our salvation. When Christ, who took on, fle on, on flesh, was crucified on Calvary, He, the Lamb of God, became our hope of eternal life. God is our salvation. And as we think about our salvation, as we think about the heavens, uh, the mighty earth-shattering reality of the gospel, as we draw deep, as it were, in Isaiah's language, with joy from the waters of salvation, realizing that Christ is our hope, and it is natural that we would break forth in thanksgiving and praise, worship that is fitting and appropriate, proportional and proper to be offered unto Him. I will trust, he goes on, and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The Lord is my strength, my song, my salvation. My whole being is taken up in this reality that God has fundamentally changed me. In this drawing of water from the wells of salvation, you may have noticed the me and my pronouns that are prevalent in verses 1 and 2. Speaking to the very individual call that we see evidenced here in the reality of salvation. It's a personal, it's an intimate reality. I will give thanks to you, for though you are angry with me, your anger is turned away, you have comfort you, that you might comfort me, and so forth. I will trust, I will not be afraid. You are my strength, my song, my salvation. Isaiah recognizes in this prophetic reality that salvation is not just a corporate affair where the nation of Israel will be preserved as a body politic. But there will come a time in that day when individuals will be saved from their sin to live eternally. Now the second portion of the psalm, or of this song, if you will, or this prophecy, is marked by a more corporate and broad sweeping reality, in fact. And this acknowledges that the full scope of Christ's rule touches the interior of our individual hearts and then extends by implication, ramification, and consequence to the whole world. So these new song themes anticipated by the prophet Isaiah, they include this prophetic situation, as we talked about, 
includes this theme of a vow of thanksgiving upon the realization of our salvation. And finally this morning, major point number three, they include this idea of a universal decree. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to tie in an incarnation moment again. Some of these seems uh, some of these points in scripture sometimes seem like footnote details, but in reality, as we challenge our minds to dig a little deeper, we might see otherwise. This is one of those. Luke 2 1. Listen. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And providentially, this was the circumstance that was the you know, immediate cause, if you will, for people going to their hometowns. And as a result, though Mary was great with child, she and Joseph made that journey to Bethlehem, and there our Savior, our Lord, was born. But notice this happened in the days when a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. So the idea of decree is not lost on us. This providential intersection with decree representing the authority and the word of Caesar Augustus uh, was a detail listed by Luke right at the beginning here. This edict, however, would, be, would pale soon in contrast to, do, to the declaration of the kingdom of God. That is to say, people make decrees. They can even co- convince and coerce their citizens to pay taxes, to travel here to account for a census, and so on and so forth. But there would be a king of kings that would arrive on the scene. And he had come, even in mere moments from this decree that went forth, or days or whatever, from Quirinius, or when Quirinius was a governor, from Caesar Augustus. And this king, his decrees would be of a different order altogether. The king of kings was coming. And when he issues a corporate call to worship, he commands all the world to bow in acknowledgement of his glorious decrees, his glorious deeds, and he has the ultimate authority to make sure that that happens. And if it doesn't, to bring judgment upon each and every head. When the Great Commission is given to the people of God, to the disciples later in the course of the gospel, the command is to go and to teach all nations. It's to announce the decree, the universal lordship, this uh, extensive uh, revelation of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ to every other authority, and to announce to them what is the reality that Jesus Christ rules and reigns and he suffers no competitors. When we draw deeply from the water of the well of salvation, we realize that we don't serve a helpless babe in manger, but we serve a king who has a flaming sword, as it were, proceeding from his mouth, able to destroy his enemies, whose eyes are like fire, who is blinding to look at if you were to see him in all his glory and can accumulate exploits in war such that the blood and the fields of Armageddon can rise to the bridal height of the horses because of the judgment that he wields and an absolutely devastating successful victory campaign over his enemies without losing a single soldier. This is the power and greatness of the king prophesied in Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, in other words, in the day when you realize the power, the glory, and the kingdom of the Messiah, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds 
among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. So you see here, the context is a little different than before. Whereas there's the individual and the intimate might be emphasized in verses 1 and 2. Now the universal proclamation is magnified in verses 4 and 5 and 6. Sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. His decree, this command goes forth. And in this section, there are multi- the expressions of praise that are called for are multiplied. Hey kids, you guys want to play the stop game today? Stop game? All right. So just a reminder, I'm going to give you a phrase, or I'm going to give you something to listen for, and when you hear it, you say stop. You guys remember how it goes? So what you're going to be listening for is an expression of praise. Okay, I'll just give you a hint. So give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks. That's an expression of praise. You guys think you can handle this? All right, so anytime you hear an expression of praise, somebody stop. Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord. Number one, call upon His name. That is an expression of praise. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Very good. Sing praises to the Lord. We have five so far. For he has done gloriously. Let this be made known. Let this be made known. That's an expression of praise. We're up to six in all the earth. Shout. Is that an expression of praise? And sing for joy. Yeah, good job. Oh, inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. We'll end it there. Good job, you guys. Got a little bit stop-happy at the end, but you'll notice that we have at least eight expressions of worship. Let me list them again. Give thanks, call upon His name, make known His deeds, proclaim that His name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, let this be made known, shout, and sing for joy. Now, when you draw deeply from the wells of salvation, when you realize the power and glory of the gospel... It's as if Isaiah is saying, there are not enough ways to praise the Lord in this mortal body. Shout, sing, sing joyfully, make known His praises, announce it, make known His deeds, and do this where? Among the peoples. Do this as far and wide as you can. Give thanks, call upon His name, and brag about His exploits through history. These are the expressions of praise eight times magnified in our context today. What are the intended audiences? There's three references as far as I can tell to who should hear these things. So in that day, once again, when you realize the salvation of the Lord, what will people who are moved and drawn deeply from the wells of salvation motivated to do? They're motivated to announce, to proclaim, to broadcast, to publicize the glories of our God. But who should they do it to? Who should hear this message? Notice the first audience in verse 4. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Second audience in verse 5, let this be made known in all the earth, among the peoples, in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. So three audiences intended for this proclamation of the glories of Christ, King of Kings. Make this known among the peoples, in all the earth, and among the inhabitants of Zion. Do you remember back in our Genesis study what happened at Babel? The nations dispersed as part of God's judgment and His providential care so that the world doesn't descend to the same immorality 
that uh, prompted the flood um, in the years that preceded that tower. So God sends the nations to their respective locations. We've talked about the legacy of those three sons of Noah. Remember Shem, Ham, and Japheth? And we got to the legacy of Shem. We noted in Scripture that this legacy was marked by significant sons. We also notice in the legacy of Japheth that his legacy was marked by distant coastlands or peoples. And then we noted that the calling of Abraham, the next significant son of note, of some time spent on his call in Genesis 11 and 12 and so forth and on for many chapters, we note that the, part, the promise and calling and covenant for him was that he would be a light to the nations. Well, this promise was not forgotten by the Lord. And in that day, as Isaiah writes, this light will be brighter and more broadly shining than it had ever been known before, calling all peoples and calling all the earth from the inhabitants of Zion to the distant corners of the tents of Japheth, if you will, the coastland regions, to shout, to sing for joy, to sing praises to God, to let his deeds be made known, to give thanks and to call upon his name. The significance of the incarnation and what Christ accomplished when he was here was of such a monumental consequence that it is a travesty. It is, uh, it is the worst hiding under a bushel that you can possibly imagine if we don't take every opportunity to broadcast this far and wide. Now, I'm as guilty as the next sometimes fearful Christian of keeping my most treasured possessions to myself and not sharing them as oft uh, as I ought. There are times when we're speaking with others and we worry about how the message will hit their ears. But if we let ourselves be corrected by the Holy Spirit's conviction, and if we let our perspective on the reality of the Great Commission's imperative to go forth and to proclaim, if we let those things be changed by the Word of God, which transforms us and renews our mind, and we draw deeply in so doing from the wells of salvation, we will increasingly find that we can't help but share the things that stir us with such encouragement, hope, and joy. Everybody who is married in this place knows that when you first had this promise of a romantic relationship that was kind of overflowing in your life, it was something that bubbled up within you and it was more difficult to keep it quiet than it was to share. Or if anyone else has accomplished something great, let's say you've competed and you've beat out 100 competitors at a race, you know, social media is practically made for, you know, publishing your exploits to all your friends and showing off what you've done. The fact is, human beings are wired to worship that which they value most. And in worshiping it, what I mean is proclaim, announce, and share with joyfully testify to and to spread the news. We are by nature heralds. It's just a question of what we're sharing. Are we sharing the banal, trivial aspects of this life? or the self-glorifying, vain accomplishments of our own short-term, stupid little existence if it was just us and what we could do on this earth in a sinful condition, such as we are? Or are we moved to proclaim and to share what is prophesied of old and accomplished in time and given to us as a precious gift as His saints, as inhabitants of Zion, as it were, among the peoples, among the nations, all the earth, and including in the church, this universal decree to proclaim the glories of our God. Let me turn you to one more passage of Scripture. There is, may I submit, John chapter 4. There is, may I submit, a real-time fulfillment of Isaiah 12 in the case of the woman at the well. 
I'm only going to be able to touch on a couple aspects here, just real shotgun fashion. But study this more if you would on your own time. Compare Isaiah 12 to John chapter 4. Notice what's happening. Jesus has commenced his ministry. He's interacting with a woman who's a multiple offender, adulterous lady of a people that were despised by the Jews anyways because of their mixed breed status, the Samaritans, and so forth. And this is a record of the interaction in John's Gospel. Chapter 4, 13, we pick up on the story. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty, or will never be thirsty, or excuse me, him, uh, the water that I give, him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Notice Jesus said to her, Go call your husband. Come here as sort of a setup. Woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Then she asked an interesting question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and it is now here when true worshipers will worship this, the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What does she do? She goes back to her village. She shares with the people joyfully. She proclaims the news that she has encountered a prophet, indeed the Savior, the Messiah. She said, come see the one who told me everything I ever knew. You know, this event was preceded by a leading question. A Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons as livestock. This entire interaction is set up as a fulfillment of Isaiah 12. Yes, there was a greater one than Jacob. The significant son prophesied and prefigured of old was now here. It was Jesus. And this well that Jacob dug could only give water. That would last for a week, you know, after you depleted your pot or whatever. And your animals could survive for a little while, and then he had to go back. It was just a temporary picture. But this picture of a well dug by Jacob that would give provisional means of survival was now eclipsed by the spiritual reality, the fulfillment, that there is a well of eternal provision in Christ our Lord. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation, Isaiah had prophesied. And now, with joy, this woman is drawing water from the wells of salvation as she confesses her sins. 
And remember what Isaiah said? You could have been angry with me. Your anger was turned away. This woman was caught in adultery. She was a flagrant lawbreaker. Yet the anger of the Lord melted away as she realized her Messiah placed faith in him and confessed that he was her hope. And then she was moved in joy to decree, to proclaim, to advance, to publish, to express, to testify to all she could come in contact with about what was going on. What a fitting scenario. Echoing Isaiah's salvation imagery. Illustrating the universal reach of the kingdom. Evident in Jesus' proclamation. Not just Judea, Samaria, but soon the uttermost parts of the earth would ring with the message of the truth as the Great Commission continues even today to unfold. The individual element of the woman who had every reason to expect God's anger, but then saw the anger uh, turned away as she realized faith in her Messiah who could save her. His question of, are you greater than our father Jacob, was answered with an emphatic yes, as Christ revealed himself to her. And so it goes, all these points and more, drawing out a real-time fulfillment. When this woman's eyes were opened, it was that day that Isaiah prophesied of old for her, was it not? As he had said, in that day, when your eyes are opened, or as we've interpreted, in that day, when you realize the salvation of the Lord, what will happen? You will give thanks to the Lord, or you will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for you were angry with me, but your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust in him. And also in that day, you will proclaim this to others. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among peoples and so forth. Let me close by asking you, this question, asking you a question. Are you drawing joyfully from the wells of salvation in your life? I think we've given enough examples of worthy water to feast upon, if you will, to draw from in Scripture. If your affections have been dulled by the cares of this world, if you've been distracted by other wells that are only brackish, tepid, and parasite-filled sources that this world has to offer, reject them. These broken cisterns cannot contain living water. This world has nothing to offer. A woman could get married six more times and never find the fountain of living water until the day when she found it in the only place it is available, her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, return to the fountain. Return in your meditations, in your love and appreciation for Scripture, in your willingness to uh, share joyfully the reality of this to others, to the source of your eternal hope. It is there, available for us. Let us not cut ourselves off from that life-giving stream. As you do so, you will be greatly encouraged, strengthened in your faith. You will find there a sufficient source to stand in a day where things seem foreboding and dark. More than this, you will have enough to share with others, begin to bubble over and to spill out into the areas that God has called you to reach so that you have enough living water to share by way of your excited testimony to your family. It's a good call, a good application for the new year as well. I pray that the Lord would grant us grace to do this as a church, to fast from the tepid water and all of the poisonous streams that are around us and to draw deeply from the wells of salvation. Let us close in prayer that God would grant us grace to do so. Dear Father, I thank you for the grace that you've extended to us in turning away your anger from us and reconciling us through the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank you that in the message of hope and salvation and Christ revealed all the way through Scripture, we have a depth 
of a well of salvation, joyful cause for praise that cannot be exhausted in this life, will not be exhausted in the next. Lord, to the degree that we have taken this grant for granted too lightly, or we've turned to other sources, let us repent and return to our first love. And let us find their streams overflowing of life-giving water enough to share even with others. Remind us of the power of this eternal hope we have in Christ and encourage us even this next year to be more faithful unto the proclamation thereof. Thank you for your holy word that provides that correction and that conviction as the Spirit uses it like the two-edged sword to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. And I pray that as you do that surgery, that we would be sanctified and more like Christ. Finally, I pray, as your word is proclaimed this day, in the hearing of all within this, the range of this message, and any other where the gospel is proclaimed unequivocally from the pulpits in this land and around the world, I pray that you would draw the lost unto salvation. That women like we see in Samaria, lost in their sin, their eyes might be pointed to Jesus Christ, that they could repent and believe. Thank you, Lord, for doing this, in our case, for believers in this room. And thank you for the harvest that you have yet appointed to bring into your storehouses of glory. May we be encouraged and equipped by these thoughts, your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.